0: I'm really proud to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Eric Liu. Eric Liu is an author, educator, and civic entrepreneur. He's a former White House speechwriter and advisor for President Bill Clinton. His books include The Accidental Asian, and most recently, The Gardens of Democracy, which he co-authored. He's a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University, and founder of the Guiding Lights and True Patriot Networks. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Eric Liu. Gregory, uh, thank you so much for that introduction. It is uh, uh, truly an honor uh, to be with here, uh, you here tonight. Uh, I think I need to say a word about Gregory and about Zocalo uh, and about their new partnership uh, with Cal Humanities and, uh, and, and Vanessa. Uh, for those of you who are newcomers to uh, Zokolo, this is one of the most remarkable instances of civic engagement that I have seen in the United States. The way that, uh, and you all are part of it, you all make it happen. Uh, And I think one of the things that uh, we forget when we talk about big concepts like citizenship uh, is that what it boils down to, in the most simple way, is whether or not you show up. It's kind of all it boils down to, is whether or not each one of us decides, in ways large and small, to show up. And Gregory and his remarkable team, in creating this set of forums, uh, has held a space for us, but it's uh, upon all of you here who've decided to show up on a very nice uh, uh, evening uh, that uh, helps give me hope for uh, for citizenship. I also want to thank our our hosts here. This is a, an unusual and uh, and lovely uh, setting to be doing uh, a gathering like this here, the Peterson Automotive uh, Museum. And uh, I didn't grow up a, a total car uh, nut, but uh, I uh, have always. Uh, felt like there was something physically embodied uh, in some of the cars you see around us here today of the American spirit. Uh, And it's, uh, I think, rather apt that we should have a conversation tonight about American character, about the meaning and the content of our citizenship. Actually, knowing that we were coming here, I got to thinking uh, about the ad that you might have seen that aired first during the Super Bowl, uh, during halftime, actually, Clint Eastwood's uh, much-noted ad for Chrysler, it's halftime in America. Uh, And the ad... Uh, which was talking about Detroit and talking about how Chrysler in particular picked itself up off the mat and came back and look out world for the second half uh, was, of course, a parable uh, for the character and the spirit of the United States. And so I actually think it's quite, quite fitting uh, that we be here tonight. Uh, My topic this evening uh, is citizenship in America and the meaning and the content of our citizenship. Uh, And I want to start, actually, not with high concept, but with a simple story. I host a gathering every year in Seattle, where I live, uh, called the Guiding Lights Weekend, and it's a conference on the art of great and creative citizenship. Uh, And this year, uh, one of the things that we did that was a real highlight of the gathering was we held for the first time uh, at our conference a United States naturalization ceremony. So we invited, you know, we had 500 attendees at this conference, but we also invited 30 immigrants from 17 nations around the world who that afternoon uh, became naturalized citizens of the United States. Uh, and I don't know how many of you either ever or recently have been to a naturalization ceremony. Uh, but if you haven't, uh, go to one. And if it's been a while, go to one. Uh, because there is nothing like it on Earth. It's full of bureaucracy. You've got the Department of Homeland Security. You've got these kind of sort of cheesy videos that they play and everything. And you know it has all these things going against it. And yet, when you get down to the most basic roll call of nations represented by those immigrants, and you go one by one as they walk down the line and receive their certificate and stand before their family and their friends and get their photograph taken, one moment not a citizen, the next moment a citizen, I mean, even telling you about it right now gives me chill bumps. It's a very powerful thing. And we had that day after the ceremony itself a speaker who some of you may have heard of, a remarkable woman in her late 80s now named Gerda Weissman Klein. Gerda Klein, as you may know, was a Holocaust survivor. She was just a young woman uh, during the Holocaust, uh, fled Poland, ended up uh, in the camps. Uh, and uh, Gerda's story is one of the most uh, American stories there is. She was liberated uh, from the camps uh, uh, by a man, uh, a G.I., who is the man she would later end up marrying, uh, and, uh, and she would emigrate to the United States uh, uh, because of this. and uh, she ended up uh, living a life that, uh, as she says, she didn't cure cancer, she didn't uh, win any major prizes, she didn't make a giant fortune. What she did simply was to live a life in freedom. And to live a life where she understood that freedom not only to be a writ of permission to do whatever she wanted, but actually a bill of responsibility that she was taking on. And indeed, quite well into her life. She, she wrote a very famous uh, memoir of her, of her life called All But My Life, uh, but later in her life she created an organization called Citizenship Counts. And it's a simple organization that hosts naturalization ceremonies all around the country and then gets conversations going with people who maybe haven't thought about this topic in a long time and uses that moment as an occasion to prompt reflection and conversation about what it means to be American, what it means to call ourselves American. I tell you the story about Gerda Weissman Klein not only because she's a remarkable exemplar of some of what I want to speak about tonight, but because she's actually in some ways the exception that proves the rule. The rule in American life today, as we sit here and gather here tonight, is that most of us most of the time don't think or talk about citizenship. Our conversations in this country about citizenship are rare, they're thin, they're tinny, they're polarized politically. And they are devoid of the ethical, spiritual, political content that, when you think about what it is that our framers fought for and successive generations actually fought for, uh, does none of them any justice. One of the things that I think is notable about citizenship itself and why I'm moved to both write about it and speak about it and why I want to talk about it tonight is that this is not a problem that's confined just to one side of the political spectrum, right? Nor is it confined to just one sector of American life. The decline of citizenship in the United States is the result of a lot of different forces converging. It's on the one side, the market becoming ever more dominant in the way that we think about our lives and think about our identities. And so the market tells us that we are but consumers and that things around us are but costs to be reduced. But on the other side as well, it's the state. It's the state that over the course of our lifetimes has encroached in smaller, tiny little ways where it becomes Not a notable thing when, as happened in Seattle uh, a year or two ago, uh, there was an awful uh, violent beating of one teenager by another in a bus tunnel. Uh, And film captured uh, two private security guards standing there watching the one teenager beat the other. Just standing there. And later when they were asked why they didn't intervene, they said, well, that wasn't our job. We're not government employees. We expected the police or someone from government to come in and break this up. And that little anecdote bespeaks another trend here, which is the ways in which so many of us, in ways that are often imperceptible, have subcontracted our civic responsibilities to the state. And so you have this convergence of forces, and you know, it's, again, it's a matter of both left and right. The left doesn't particularly talk these days about American citizenship, I think a lot of Friends of mine on the, on the progressive left, uh, if they talk about citizenship at all, they like to think about it in terms of global citizenship, transcending the nation state. Why are you so parochial talking about America? Can't we get beyond this sort of stuff, right? Uh, and on the right, well, there is a lot of conversation about citizenship right now, but it's often in an exclusionary, mean-spirited, restrictionist kind of tone about who gets to claim it, about who gets to be barred from it, rather than what it actually is. And so the sum of all of this is that we have this deeply unsatisfying conversation about citizenship. And indeed, one of the things that's been in the public uh, debate over the last couple of years is uh, a a plea from some on the right uh, that because of the uh, extent of illegal immigration, because of the existence of, and I put them heavily in air quotes, anchor babies uh, out there, uh, that what we ought to do uh, to correct this is to repeal birthright citizenship what we ought to do is repeal the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which gives to anybody born on American soil citizenship as a matter of right. And so this idea that's out there, which is, to my mind, uh, faulty on a constitutional basis and noxious on an eth- ethical one, uh, is out there. And you, know, you look at it, and what I decided to do in looking at it was not just get angry that there were people out there trying to uh, repeal the Constitution in order to punish the children of undocumented immigrants. But what I decided to do was to do a little bit of a thought experiment. Well, let's think about that. All right, let's imagine what if citizenship was not in fact a birthright? What if in fact just being here didn't guarantee you anything? And what if in fact that rule applied not only to immigrants, whether documented or not, but to every single one of us? What if every single one of us today had to earn our citizenship in some form or fashion? And that simply showing a birth certificate, which itself may be questioned, uh, is not going to be sufficient uh, to, to, to prove your citizenship. What if? And as a thought experiment, it's a kind of interesting thing to contemplate. Well, if not birth, then what? If not birth, then perhaps it ought to be service to community and to country. Perhaps it ought to be some measure of knowledge of what this country is and what it's about. Perhaps it ought to be some measure of contribution to your actual community and society. Perhaps it it ought not to be a kind of thing that, once bestowed, is granted forever, but perhaps must lapse periodically and must be renewed periodically. Now earlier today, it was kind of funny, some of you may have heard, I I, I went on public radio and uh, uh, did a little segment talking about this. um, I think lost on many of the callers was that I was doing a thought experiment uh, and, 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 and proposing this in kind of the Swiftian sense of a modest proposal. Uh, and there were people who were very alarmed that, oh my gosh, this guy's out there and he, he's proposing that we all have to earn citizenship and that we all have to take a test and by God that's, you know, and, and it ran the gamut. That, that sounded Nazi to some callers and that sounded European uh, to, to other callers and I, I, I suppose by that he meant socialist, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, uh, but the net of it was that there was this visceral reaction of, my God, how dare you question my right to citizenship? Uh, and to me, the emotional content of that response is super telling and super important for us to reckon with. Because you can put aside the, content, the, the substantive content of, uh, of citizenship and its constitutional components and so on and so forth, but just the fact that when asked, when asked hypothetically, hey, what would you have to do to earn it, people became defensive, people became rapidly self-justifying, um, says to me that, again, we know deep in our hearts that as a country we are a little bit sick in our citizenship, that we are not as healthy as we can be. Because a country and a society that was secure in the knowledge that we are doing all we can to foster a deep, strong sense of civic identity would listen to that and chuckle and say, dude, we're already doing that. We're already earning it every day. You don't need a test. You don't need to have this thought experiment. But because we know deep in our hearts that something is amiss in this country, that was the response. The other thing that was telling to me though about the response to that hypothetical was that it reveals to us something that again, Gerda Weissman Klein revealed to those of us who were gathered in her presence that day, which is how much most of us most of the time take for granted every single aspect of the privilege not just the privileges and immunities, but the privilege of living, living in the United States. And so for me, what this brings me to, in the heart of my remarks this evening, is I believe strongly, I believe passionately, and I believe this as a second-generation American, as the son of immigrants who, are, who came to this country from China via Taiwan. I believe deeply that right now, more than ever, we need to have a new movement in this country To Americanize Americans. Now, I say that word right now, and I know some of you sitting in the audience, some of you watching on television, hackles have gone up already. Because that word Americanize has connotations. It sounds like the Americanization movement of 100, 120 years ago, where there was this kind of one-size-fits-all, or what I call wasp-size-fits-all approach to the way to become American is to be like these white guys over here. And since you're not white, I guess you don't get to be fully American in any cultural sense. And that spirit of Americanization, which was, which was narrow uh, and restrictive and not nearly as encompassing of the diversity that in fact is the United States, that was Americanization 100, 120 years ago. But just because a thing was implemented poorly one time does not absolve us of the responsibility to implement it well in our own time. I believe deeply that in our own time, we need to have a true 21st century approach to re-Americanizing America. And to me, what this means is not rah-rah, America's great, my country, right or wrong. What this means is reinstilling in all of us an appreciation of the values that constitute American identity, the values. One of the things that we all know, but again, we rarely say aloud to one another and refresh and renew our awareness of, is that this is a country not based on blood, not based on tribe, not based on religion, not based on soil. This is a country based completely on an idea. And what is exceptional about this country, what has been exceptional from the very start, is that we are a nation dedicated to a proposition, and to me, True Americanization means recommitting ourselves to that proposition. And what I want to talk about tonight and unpack is what I mean by this, what a a new 21st century Americanization movement would look like and would feel like and what the content of that would be. And there are three dimensions to it that I want to highlight. One is creed, one is character, and one is culture. I'd like to say just a few words about each of these as a way to frame up our conversation that I hope we'll have afterwards. Let me start with creed. For a country that is exceptional because it is dedicated to a proposition, we sure do a poor job of renewing with each generation of young people what the actual creed is, what the language of our civic scripture is. Make no mistake, we do have a civic religion. I carry around with me sometimes, if I have it here, uh, yeah, here it is, a, a little pocket declaration, Gettysburg Address, and Constitution. Uh, and it's kind of dog-eared, and sometimes I'm flipping through it to look up the, you know, the uh, Article 1, Section 8, the Commerce Clause, and when people are arguing about the Commerce Clause. Uh, but other times, I just look through it uh, to reread sentences, to reread simple sentences or clauses even like this, that, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom and that this government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth." These aren't just words. This is an inheritance. This is a creed that we've inherited. And our responsibility is to make that creed something other than words carved in marble, but to make it something that we live in acts, small and large, every day. One of the things that I think is troubling for a lot of people when they hear language of citizenship, patriotism, Americanization, is the sense that they say, well look, that creed is nice and all, but if you look at American history, America over and over and over again, to this very day, has failed to live up to that creed. And you know what? I will stipulate that 100%. That's, it's not even worth trying to deny that. This country has failed over and over again to live up to its creed. But what makes this country again remarkable and exceptional is that at every turn, we measure our worth by how much we are moving ourselves toward closer alignment to that creed. And that the arc of American history properly understood is in fact the closing of the gap between creed and deed. And so when, to take another piece of civic scripture, when Martin Luther King Jr. gave the I Have a Dream speech, yes, he quoted from scripture, And he talked about the valleys and the the mountains, and he used biblical language. But he also quoted from the scripture of the United States. And he talked about the promissory check embedded in the Declaration and in the Gettysburg Address. And he spoke and he sang. He literally sang aloud words from our anthems. And he did that not only because he was on some rhetorical flight of fancy, but because he understood that the way to make America live up to its promise in something like the Civil Rights Movement, was to hold like a mirror before us our stated creed and to remind ourselves, this is what we said we are. This is what we said we'd be. And we're not being it, and we're not it. And we have a choice. That choice is either to say, well, I guess we are but hypocrites, or to say, we got to close that gap. Dr. King closed that gap. Every successive generation in its own way has closed that gap. And, you know, the nature of that gap closing and the beauty, I think, of American life is that, uh, not to get too mathematical, but it's, uh, it's asymptotic. You know, the gap can close and close, but it can never go to zero. You can keep cutting it in half, but it never disappears altogether. And the faith that you have to have in that creed is a faith that only by showing up do we narrow that distance between what we promised we would be and how we would treat each other as, on matters of race, how we would treat each other on matters of gender, how we would treat each other in matters of sexual orientation, how we would treat each other in who we let call themselves American. And so that creed has to be something that not only we as adults have to renew and find ways to, to, to refresh our knowledge of, uh, but certainly in the way that we educate children. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who is a, a, a hero of mine, Uh, in her retirement, has launched an initiative called iCivics.org. Some of you may have heard of this. And it's an online platform using video games and video game technology to teach middle school students civics. And one of the things that she does, and the reason why she has chosen to devote so much of her passion and her energy post-retirement from the Supreme Court to iCivics is that she reminds us that, hey, wait a minute. The whole point of having free compulsory public education in the United States was to make citizens. It was not, as we have the language of today, to make great workers. It was not to make or prepare great consumers. It was to prepare citizens for participation in and ownership of this democracy. And to me, the creed is where that education must begin. The second piece of this and where that education must continue is character. Character, again, is one of those words that has gotten so politicized in recent decades. You hear character, and uh, ironically, it's sort of like the word liberty. If I were to say, you know, make up a name of an institution, you know, the, the Liberty Institute, uh, eight out of, eight, nine, nine out of ten of you would just guess that, oh, that's a conservative organization. Right? Why? Because conservatives are the ones who use the word liberty today. Th- that's sort of a statement of cultural fact today, uh, but the fact that we accept it is, to me, repulsive. And not just because I'm a Democrat and a progressive and I don't want the other side to own that word, but because as an American, it should repulse us that any side of the debate should claim full ownership of liberty. Well, the same is true in a way of character, right? You hear the word character now, and a lot of times character education, uh uh-oh, sounds like some moralists from the right wing here telling me what to do, right? It's that kind of Bill Bennett kind of language, and I don't want to go there, right? Right? Uh, and, uh, to, to, uh, and for people who are feeling that, I have to say, get over it, because character does count. And when I'm talking about Americanization and civic identity, I don't mean just character on the individual level, like honesty and perseverance and, uh, and the like. All these things do matter. But civic character is about character in the collective, how we behave in public, how we behave in groups, how we are together in community, and whether we cultivate the ethics and the mindset and the habits of heart and mind to live cooperatively. Not to live in conflict or not to live in a pretense of atomization, but to live together. And that is a matter of character. It is a matter of inculcating an ethic of responsibility and mutuality and reciprocity and sharing of sacrifice. We aren't born just having those ethics, they must be instilled by culture. They must be instilled by schools. They must be instilled by us as parents and grandparents and mentors. They must be instilled by everybody who's in a a position to instill. One of the ways that I've often shorthanded this spirit of of character, uh, Gregory mentioned that I'm the co-author of a a recent book, this little book called The Gardens of Democracy. And uh, one chunk of this whole book is about citizenship. And uh, my co-author, Nick Hanauer, and I boil down the citizenship section to a simple precept, uh, which is this. Society becomes how you behave. How you behave. This is contrary to a lot of received wisdom in American life. The kind of atomistic, individualistic story that we like to tell ourselves in American life as a matter of character is, hey, as long as I'm not actively harming somebody else, actively screwing over somebody else, I should be able to do whatever the heck I want. Back off. Don't tread on me. Society becomes how you behave is a different way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world not as atomized and mechanistic and disconnected, but looking at the world as ecosystemic, deeply entwined, inseparably interconnected. And so when I am courteous, society becomes courteous. When I am civil, society becomes civil. When I am compassionate, society becomes compassionate. I'll use an example that I think all of you who managed to get here tonight in L.A. traffic can uh, relate to. Uh, I saw a billboard not long ago, I don't think it was in LA, but uh, it was a billboard by this completely congested highway, nothing was moving. And the billboard said this, it said, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. (laughs) You laugh ruefully here in Los Angeles, but, uh, but it's true, you are traffic, right? So you're not stuck in broken politics, you are broken politics. You're not stuck in a rapacious winner-takes-all market economy. You are that market economy. We participate in everything. We shape everything. And simply not having an opinion on it or trying to opt out is a form of participation that is nearly as powerful as actively working for the forces of bad. This is what I mean by teaching character. And I grant that this is not the dominant key. This is a minor key in the American song. The dominant key is rugged individualism, right? But on the other hand, when you look for real at anything great that America has ever done, you realize that rugged individualism never got a barn raised. Rugged individualism never led people to a town meeting. Rugged individualism never enabled people to pull together through something like the Great Depression. And rugged individualism isn't going to get us out of this great recession either. So character does matter, and how we cultivate that character as a civic matter is crucial. This brings me then to the third and the final dimension of citizenship that I want to speak to tonight, and that is culture. One of the things about American life, you know, uh, and it's always fun to talk to recent immigrants uh, about it, about what they think is American, uh, and you'll find that they'll give you an answer that is very mediated. It is very pop-cultural right? It's about NASCAR or about American Idol or about McDonald's or about these things. Uh, and, you know, I often say that we, today in the 21st century, we don't so much anymore have a story of self in America as we have a Twitter feed in which we have multiple little fragments of story and all of them are very perishable and they all disappear. But we don't have anymore the confidence in American identity, the confidence in the exceptionalism of our creed and our responsibility to build a culture of song and story and poetry and dance and anthem around that creed. And I say to you, we must find that confidence again. We must unleash that creativity again. We must direct that creative capacity, that imagination toward this greater story of what this country is and what it means. I was looking back uh, Another Los Angeles reference, uh, another one of my heroes, uh, uh, Norman Lear. Uh, Among the many, many things he did during uh, his heyday in the world of television, 30 years ago this year, probably, you know, those of you who who were alive then might not even have remembered this, but 30 years ago, he created this uh, pageant for ABC, televised pageant called I Love Liberty. Uh, And it was this great kind of corny, cheesy, wacky thing that involved you know, the, the television stars from the 70s, uh, the Muppets, uh, you know, all these things that kind of mashed together pop culture and references to the founding fathers and references to the Bicentennial and to the Revolution. And he just took everything he could grab onto in American life at that time, both the cheesy and the kind of sublime. And he pulled it together into this pageant that was itself so beautifully American. It was diverse. It was multicultural. We did not shy away from our failings and our faults. And he put this pageant on, I can't believe ABC televised this thing, <laughs> n- now that you think about our culture today, right? But millions of people watch this thing. And I thought about that, and I thought, not only is it remarkable that ABC televised it, but to me, what's more remarkable is thinking about the pitch meeting, right? <laughs> thinking about how Norman Lear had to go in and talk to the suits at ABC and say, I got this idea, right? We're going to do this big pageant. It's going to have Muppets and, and Founding Father wigs and we're going to have, you know, Eric Estrada do this and, you know, all, all this stuff. Uh, and the fact that the suits of that era were like, dang, that's a good idea. Let's put that on air, right? Says something about the culture. Today, we would not have that same sense of, yes, every now and again, this country needs something like this that pulls together high and low, broad and narrow, all different ways of singing and making known the many voices that are heard when someone tries to sing America, and to do it in ways that are beautiful, creative, and innovative. That is a charge that all of us have to take. Not everybody here is an artist, but everybody here is capable of humming a tune. Everybody here knows the tune, this land is your land. Everybody here knows the tune, America the Beautiful. Half of you here know how to create kind of mixtapes and mashups and all kinds of things on, in technology. Nothing stops us from taking what was old and maybe crusty and maybe too white and maybe restrictionist and maybe even racist about some of our inheritance and saying, I reclaim this. I reclaim this today. I remix this. I remake this. I reclaim this. That's what we have to do in our culture. Because guess what, that's the point of being American. I reclaim, I remix, I redeem. There are two deep, deep story patterns in American culture. One is this deep story of failing over and over again to live up to a stated promise. But then by bits and pieces, by fits and starts, redeeming ourselves for every separate but equal there is a Martin Luther King. For every Chinese exclusion act, there is a Gary Locke, who is now the United States ambassador to China, that we redeem. That's one of the deep story patterns. But one of the other deep, deep story patterns that is, again, part of our exceptional writ and responsibility is our unmatched capacity to create new hybrids, to take genes Memes, ideas, songs, myths, stories from every corner of the planet and swirl them together, not into some bland, denaturing melting pot that makes everybody the same kind of off-white beige color, but says, go forth and multiply. Create new permutations, create new combinations. That is a, that is a story, literally, of our bloodlines from our president on down. But it's also the story of everyday American life. And these two deep stories of redemption and hybridization are the stories that we have to tell over and over again. We are but a young country. We don't have millennia of myth to go back to. We don't have primeval stories and place to hearken to. All we have is all we have, and a lot of it's in this little book right here. But we have still the capacity of imagination and creativity to convert this even modest inheritance into works of great new invention and creation. So this is what I mean when I say we need a new movement to re-Americanize Americans. And when I say this, I don't mean, just to be clear, just immigrants, just our newcomers, let alone just the undocumented. I mean every one of us. Every one of us, no matter where you are, where you come from, how long you've been or your family has been in this country. And I know that a lot of what I talk about here gives people, for different reasons, a measure of discomfort. And I'm hoping that when we get a chance here for a Q&A and conversation, uh, you'll get to give voice to some of that discomfort. But I want to speak to this discomfort at least in one small way. The discomfort comes, as I said at the outset, from both left and right, right? There's a presumption among so many people uh, on the right for conservatives today who say, you know what, I think that all liberals hate America. And so to hear this guy, Eric Liu, who's a Democrat, he used to work for Bill Clinton, talking about America, I just don't buy it. I don't even want to hear it. Right? And meanwhile, from the left, you have people saying, all this talk about loving America and appreciating what is great, that sounds like conservatives to me. I don't want to go there. That sounds like, you know, either in earnest, the kind of uh, uh, graphics package that Fox News uses or, in mockery, the graphics package that Stephen Colbert uses, right? <laughs> Either way, it's, that feels like a, you know, some kind of thing that I, I don't want any part of. And again, my message to both right and left is we have to get over this. We have a common destiny in this country and we have, to be sure, deep, deep differences of ideology, deep, deep differences of strategy, deep, deep differences of worldview. But we are all equally inheritors to this creed. We all equally are trustees to this country. And I think one of the things that is troubling to so many people, when I speak of American exceptionalism, and that rubs some people the wrong way on the left, and meanwhile on the right people think that exceptionalism simply means, yeah, we get to do whatever we want, I'm brought to mind of a quote from a fellow named Carl Schurz a United States senator about a century before Barack Obama was a United States senator from Illinois. Mm -hmm. Carl Schurz said during this period of high tension and nativism and jingoism, he said, the right way to think is not my country right or wrong. It's my country when right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. That is what is exceptional here. And the right today forgets that we are exceptional because we are progressive. We are exceptional because we are progressive, because generation after generation, we aren't content to let things be. We try to push ourselves to live up to our creed. But the left too often forgets that we are progressive because we are exceptional. That the only reason we've been able to claim the ground and close the gap the way we have is because we are dedicated uniquely to this proposition. And so, as I leave you with that thought, I simply want to harken back to, as I started telling you about Gerda Weissman Klein and the naturalization ceremony we held at this conference. One of the things we did on the second day of the conference, inspired by that, was to create a brand new sort of ceremony. Not a naturalization ceremony for for immigrants who are becoming brand new citizens, but something that we made up called a sworn again American ceremony that allowed people of long-standing citizenship to swear again, to commit again, to say again, to sing again what it is that this country stands for, and to pledge again where right to keep it right, and where wrong to set it right. I ask every one of you here tonight, whether you love what I had to say or hated it, to remember that our ability to have this conversation is indeed itself part of what is exceptional and part of our obligation. And so each one of us, wherever you are from, however long you have been here, whatever your background is, whatever your politics is, I ask you simply to do this. Go forth and live like a citizen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you think there's a substitution of symbolism instead of citizenship? So, People take comfort in singing the national anthem at a sports event rather than actually embodying what is citizenship, saying, well, I sing the national anthem. I fly my flag. I do this, that, and the other, rather than taking the actions that that embody true citizenship. When I was saying earlier uh, that I put forward this thought experiment right? of what if there wasn't birthright citizenship in the United States and everybody had to earn it, I actually wrote a little piece uh, in in The Atlantic uh, uh, proposing this. This little idea and saying, you know, what if uh, you had to do a certain amount of service? Uh, what if you had to show uh, a certain amount of knowledge? I mean, heck, nothing more than even passing the same uh, written exam that naturalizing citizens have to pass. I bet a good number of native-born Americans could not pass that exam, right? Uh, some measure of net contribution, volunteerism, service, whatever it may be, right? Uh, and uh, again. Uh, when you put forth that idea and people take you seriously, they're like, dude, no, 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 that's so kind of top-down. And, 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 and what I say is, okay, I won't make you do that, right? I won't strip you of your birthright citizenship. But in addition to flying the flag and singing the anthem, I simply want to ask you, what have you done today to earn it, right? And I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves every day as well. This is not about standing on high and judging others. This is first judging ourselves and asking ourselves, how am I, what am I doing? Am I doing enough? Right? And I think that spirit is something that uh, I agree completely has to be embodied in deeds and not only uh, I- in words.
1: Um, I heard you this afternoon on air talk, and I thought you handled some of those uh, callers very well. <laughs> um, and I agree with what I think is the vision you're putting out there. But knowing, as you just said, that the article you'd written was more about kind of a thought experiment and not really um, a roadmap, in order to kind of attain the vision, you obviously need to have some goals and objectives to make, make your way there. So what do you think is kind of the starting point? What are some objectives that we could start at to obtain that greater vision that you have?
0: So foundationally, again, for me, is education. Um, and what our public schools do or do not do uh, and uh, you know any of you who have as I have uh, you know a child in, in public schools knows that um, civics isn 't really taught anymore as such i mean you 'll get some history uh, you 'll you'll get some of uh, you know uh, something about uh, uh, you know the declaration and so forth, but civics in the sense of teaching systematically about the values the institutions and the skills of that are necessary to be an effective participant and owner of the democracy, uh, over the last few decades, that's been sort of diluted or, 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 or made to disappear. Uh, and not always for nefarious reasons, but sometimes just because, uh, you know, the curriculum and the focus on, uh, on reading and math have squeezed it out. Uh, sometimes uh, because uh, people felt like, oh, if I go too much towards civics and government and politics, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tick somebody off. So as a teacher, I don't really want to go there. Right? Sometimes because social studies displaced civics and we kind of began to think more in this kind of systemic view about things, but rather than, again, focusing on the original purpose of public schooling. So one thing that I think we can all do, uh, number one, check out Justice O'Connor's iCivics.org and find ways to support it. Uh, there's an organization called the National Campaign for the Civic Mission of Schools. Uh, and they are this national coalition uh, that pulls together educators, Neighbors, civic leaders like yourselves, people from, all, from cities all over the country uh, to try to renew a spirit of, hey, this is what schooling is supposed to be about, so let's put some pressure on our local school board to make sure there's more civics in the curriculum. Let's make sure we have support for our educators to make sure that if they're into wanting to teach civics, they know what the resources are and that they're available and that they're free and that they're accessible. Um, here in, in Southern California, there's a thing called the Center on Civic Education that does a lot of similar uh, w- work in that vein. So, education is one thing. Uh, but the second thing I would say uh, uh, is again, in the spirit of society becomes how you be- behave, uh, is just look with new eyes at the way that you live. Right? Uh, and so, yes, it's true that uh, uh, the, the, the modest proposal that I put forward for you know, government mandated citizenship tests is not going to come to pass. Uh, but it is definitely the case uh, that each one of us, uh, in thinking about um, what the meaning is uh, of our civic identity, uh, can be just a notch more mindful, a notch more mindful. And to find venues, whether it's in our houses of worship, in our workplaces, in our kids' sports leagues, in our book groups, to strike up conversations that will flow out of the conversation we're having here tonight. One other meaning of society becomes how you behave is that behavior is contagious. And so every, you know, in a sense, if you came to a thing like this, uh, you know, I'm already sort of preaching to the converted, right? Uh, But the benefit of preaching to the converted is that you create a whole new host of choir masters, right? Uh, And you all can go out there and create your own new choirs and create new conversations and, and... you know, I, I have a friend who, uh, Akhil Amar, who's a professor of law uh, at Yale, uh, and uh, uh, and perhaps similarly because uh, uh, he, he comes to this as a descendant of recent descendant of immigrants, uh, has this passion uh, for America. Uh, and he and a colleague of his at Yale Law School are in the midst of putting together uh, what they're calling basically a civic seder, a little booklet of kind of seminal uh, civic scriptural readings. Um, conversation starters to, you know, get dinner table discussion going with your kids or with your grandparents or with your relatives or friends, uh, exercises, little resources, and something that's kind of very... Uh, I, I think it's coming out later this uh, this September. I think, indeed, to mark the 225th anniversary of the Constitution, uh, they plan to release this. But, you know, if every one of us went ahead and bought that book when that came out and, and had our own little civic satyrs, society would become how we were behaving. It seems that as a drive to push school control to local levels that when you start start talking about civics you're really talking about a lot of political ma- line, uh, landmines out there and does does the need to emphasize civics again mean pulling back from the local control of schools or somehow at least getting them to get on the same page my short answer is yes my longer answer is uh, I, I agree very much with your, uh, your, your diagnosis of the situation, right? Um, and look, local control of education has a deep, long, and probably in the end, undislodgeable place uh, in, in American society. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain things that are of national importance. There are certain things that are, that are national responsibilities. Uh, and I would say, you know, near the top of that list. Uh, is teaching each successive generation of students what it means to be in this nation, right? Uh, And so one of the things that I have called for uh, is uh, an initiative at the national level uh, to ensure that if we're going to have some funding for education that comes from the federal government, uh, that what it funds is a a layer at least of civic education that is nationally uniform, right? Beneath that layer, or atop that layer, depending on how you want to think about it, sure, you can have lots of stuff that's about the local civic history of Washington State, or the local civic history of Missouri, you know, and you can learn if you, you know, are are from Nebraska or Kansas uh, about the incredible, bloody, bloody history of the Kansas Nebraska Act, and the fugitive slave law, and all that time and that period that is particular to your place. We don't talk about that stuff too much in Washington State, right? across every state, across every locality has to be some common song sheet, some common set of questions. And here too, I don't mean song sheet just in the sense of let's all say rah-rah America, right? I mean, one of the things that I think when I was talking about these storylines of redemption and hybridization in American culture, I think the thing that we have to teach to and learn to teach to and get progressives and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats to learn together to teach to is the tension, American life is a big tension. It is a tension between one promise of freedom and one promise of equality, right? We like to think these are all kind of wholly consistent, but freedom is continuously in tension with equality. Letting people do whatever they want does not usually yield equal outcomes or equal opportunities, right? There are tensions all over the place in American life. There's a tension between celebrating the creed on the one hand and becoming blindly jingoistic on the other hand, right, there's a tension between patriotism and raw nationalism, right? And learning to teach these tensions uh, is something that we've got to do. And I have faith that we can do it. And the reason why I have faith is I have seen educators do this in ways that bridge left and right. I have seen books and anthologies that bridge this divide. So I, will ref- I-, I would commend to you two different great anthologies that themselves are sort of a civic education, uh, one from the right and one from the left, the one... Uh, from the right is a, a recent anthology called What So Proudly We Hail. And it's a collection of, uh, of creative works, mainly fiction, uh, that was edited by a guy named Leon Cass. Leon Cass uh, was a, an advisor to President George W. Bush, um, and uh, very active in the American Enterprise Institute, and just a, you know, a, a, a University of Chicago, a very philosophically conservative guy. right? Uh, and you read through What So Proudly We Hail, and the selections that they've chosen of excerpts from American literature and fiction and poetry and song that illuminate these dimensions of American creed, character and culture. And I come through that and I'm full of respect for the ways in which they're not just doing rah-rah, they're not just saying let's whitewash American history, they're not just saying people who are, you know, uh, talking about multicultural history are just whiners and complainers, no, no, no. They're pointing out the tensions in an adult grown-up way. And on the other side too, is the anthology called A Patriot's Handbook that was uh, edited by Caroline Kennedy. And in the same spirit, in direct lineage, the spirit of her father, asking us what we can do for our country. Well, one thing we can do for our country is know what our country is for, right? And that's the thing that she does in that anthology is pulling together a a different set of texts and speeches and writings uh, that if you did nothing but read you would have an order of magnitude deeper appreciation for this thing I've been saying over and over again, our inheritance. Uh, So I think it is totally necessary to have that as a national initiative and then couple it with uh, with, uh, civic uh, learning that's tailored to the local. I happen to be a city clerk in the city of Glendale, and one of my responsibilities is conducting municipal elections. And the act of voting is oftentimes, I think, becomes synonymous with uh, the term citizenship and civic duty. I want to know what your thoughts were on that, given this vision that you've proposed that I think is very refreshing along with the dialogue that you've started, considering that the two were not synonymous always in this country. And it wasn't until the 19, I believe, 20s when we had the first election in this country where citizenship was a requirement for everyone uh, to vote. So, um, in moving forward and making uh, um, your vision a reality for all Americans, uh, how do we merge or separate these ideas given the political um, culture of today? Another thing that all of us can be doing here, practically, uh, is to be revivifying the franchise, okay? So that means voting, you, those of you who are are eligible to vote, uh, it means registering if you're eligible but haven't uh, registered, Uh, it means encouraging others to vote It means fighting for democracy, right? And and to be not so kind of vague, I mean fighting to change the rules of the game so that more people can participate in the vote. We are sitting here at a time where various states around the country are changing their rules for the franchise that are meant to restrict access to the ballot. And it's happening sort of below the radar and without a lot of people paying attention uh, and this is a dangerous thing, and there is, of course, unfortunately, a partisan tint to that. It's more Republicans doing that than than not. But put aside the partisanship of it; it's just, as an American, a bad thing when you start having kind of these sub rosa efforts to, uh, to to limit the franchise. But to the other part of the question, I think voting is a crucial, central part of citizenship in the sense uh, that I've described it. But it is by no means the only part, right? What voting is is one of the most tangible dimensions of the duty side, the responsibility side of citizenship. In America, we are rights crazy, right? We love to think about citizenship as a big, big cornucopia basket of rights, right? I get to do this, I get to do that. You don't get to tell me to do this, right? Uh, And of course, that is in our DNA. That comes from how this country came to be, right? Don't tread on me. But I think in any functioning healthy society whatever its provenance there has to be coupled with that sense of rights an equal measure of responsibility and this is not just some dude from compassionate seattle coming here in 2012 speaking this language of responsibility uh, being wedded to rights Uh, this was the understanding indeed of our founders this was the understanding of thomas jefferson Uh, there's a great book so gary wills the historian uh, perhaps best known for his book on on gettysburg called lincoln at gettysburg uh, in which he unpacks the text and the meaning of the Gettysburg Address, has another book that's not as well-known, but by my lights is just as important to our understanding our country, and it's called Inventing America. And it's a, an intellectual history of the Declaration of Independence, and particularly of the Scottish Enlightenment, Hume and Hutchison and all these people who shaped and formed the thinking of both a young and then an adult, Thomas Jefferson. And one of the central precepts of the Scottish Enlightenment one of the central ideas of the culture in which Thomas Jefferson was steeped and soaked was that the idea that freedom is not only inseparable from responsibility, but that freedom is responsibility. That every right comes with a countervailing duty. And that you cannot separate these things. And in the early years of the Republic, they didn't even need to say it because it was just understood that to be a civic Republican, small r Republican, meant that you show up You show up at town meeting, you show up when it's time to take one of the town offices, you show up in small ways and large ways, right? It's been in successive generations that we've lost that sense. And so the responsibility side of citizenship has sort of been reduced to this one island called voting. And even there, a lot of people don't go visit, right? But I think there is a greater territory here for us to reclaim, for us to resurface. Uh, And it is about how we contribute to community. It is about how we serve one another in everyday life. Uh, And this is about uh, uh, how we, in this day and age, even have conversations about what it means to be American. My friend Jose Antonio Vargas, who some of you may have heard of, uh, a remarkable uh, person who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist uh, uh, and a contributor to American life, Uh, about almost two years ago, he came out, and the way he came out Uh, uh, It wasn't about uh, sexuality, he came out as undocumented. He wrote a story in the New York Times Magazine and said, I'm now going to tell the world what only a small number of people in my life have known, which is, I am an illegal immigrant. And he did so, obviously, at great personal peril, but he did so because he felt like there are so many people in a situation like his, undocumented Americans, who by definition have no voice, who are afraid to make a voice heard. And that he, as somebody who has that voice, who as a journalist, as a Pulitzer winner, had access to platforms of voice, had an obligation. He had not just the right to say what he thought. He had an obligation to pass on that right to other people. And so he spoke up. But then he did more than speak up. He created a project called Define American. And so if you go to defineamerican.org, you see this this kind of cornucopia of of videos and testimonials of people just saying, whatever they are, they're longtime citizens, they're recent immigrants, they're documented, they're undocumented, just saying what they think American means, right? That's our responsibility as well. So to me, voting, yes. If called to serve on a jury, yes. Uh, If you are eligible for a draft, if we ever should have a draft, yes. But there are so many other everyday ways in which we either show up or we don't, and Uh, The last book I'll recommend to you. This is like turning into a book club discussion here. Um, But you've heard me say the phrase, show up, like 10 times here today. And that's because of the third of my kind of heroes uh, who I want to acknowledge and cite today, uh, uh, Seattle's own Bill Gates Sr., father of Microsoft Bill. Uh, Obviously not as known worldwide as as the younger Bill, uh, but Bill Gates Sr. is a remarkable man, lawyer, leader, father, Uh, And he wrote a memoir a couple years ago called Showing Up for Life. Uh, And it's just a collection of anecdotes partly about his public life or his life as a lawyer and and, and a civic leader, but mainly about the family that Bill Sr. and and he credits uh, Mary Gates, his his, uh, then wife, his first wife, uh, who's now deceased, um, the way that she created a culture within the Gates family, right? And so, yes, there's voting. Yes, there's serving in a jury. Yes, there's doing these things like you know, picking up litter and uh, being courteous in traffic and all that. But then there's also attending to the cultures that we create around us, in our households, in our friend groups, in our neighborhoods, in our blocks. We are always continuously contributing to a culture. The only question is whether we are contributing positively or negatively. Things are never in stasis in social life. They are either in a positive feedback loop, a virtuous cycle, circle, or a negative feedback loop in a vicious cycle, right? And so... I think this responsibility side of citizenship has to encompass something broader than simply um, our, our uh, franchise responsibility.
1: I want to point out, first of all, that I myself am the son of an immigrant. And I, I'm sure, I'm confident that it's done nothing but embolden my sense of patriotism, um, my sense of duty to country. Um, with that said, you did mention that there's a, a, that political gap that exists between right and left. Um, the the right we we seem to believe that the right c- claims some sort of ownership uh, to that sense of liberty that sense of Americana while I guess on the left it's believed that uh, we have sort of a, more of a globalist mindset um, coming from the left myself I I do share that I do have that sense of uh, that globalist mindset uh, but I also have I think a very acute sense of patriotism. Um, and so I guess my, my, my question is, what can we do or what needs to happen to, to bridge that gap, to come together and bridge that gap? Because it, there seems to be a trust that a trust gap yeah. that, that the, the left believes that they don't, they don't, they don't trust the, the direction that the right wants to take the country. The right doesn't trust uh, the direction that the left wants to take the country.
0: Uh, one measure of how being second generation uh, has emboldened Santigi to express and embody Uh, his passion and affinity uh, for an identity is the fact that we stand here in Los Angeles and he unabashedly wears a New York Yankees jersey. (laughs) I love that, man. I love that. I'm a Yankee fan myself, so let's go Yankees. Uh, 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 But seriously, um, I I say that partly kidding, but partly seriously because patriotism, identity, um, we are not wholly rational creatures, I'm, I'm sad to report to you. You know, we are not calculating machines. We are tribal, reciprocal, emotional beings. We are group animals. We are social animals, right? And so being able and willing, even if you are the most dyed in the wool progressive and have the greatest faith in technocrats in government to create programs to solve everybody's problem, it is not enough to live only at the level of the technocracy. We have to speak to the viscera as well. Uh, the, the book that I wrote that preceded uh, this book, Gardens of Democracy, was a, uh, was a little pamphlet called The True Patriot. Uh, and my argument in The True Patriot, speaking exactly to your question, uh, was that over the last several decades, the very idea of patriotism has been co-opted by the right in this country, but also surrendered by the left and to the detriment of everybody. right? And when that happens, when one side grabs it and the other side walks away from it, Uh, it cheapens the very idea of what patriotism is. And our argument in this book uh, was that to reclaim patriotism is not simply a matter, or in fact not at all a matter, of just saying, rah-rah, me too, you know, chest-thumping, right? That to reclaim patriotism, to speak of a true patriotism, is to unpack the moral content of what we mean by love of country. If you seriously, truly love your country, want to put country before self, that must mean... That you believe in mutuality. That must mean that you believe we're all in it together. That must mean you believe in sharing of sacrifice and service to others. That cannot possibly mean that you believe the market should reign and let things sort out the way they sort out. It cannot possibly mean you think every man for himself. Right? And so unpacking the values content of patriotism turned out to be a very powerful way to start conversations that cross this divide of left and right. Because once you started talking about what it is that you mean, you begin to realize that, wow, there are Democrats and Republicans both who believe that you need to look out for your neighbor, right? And that even though there are sound bites about, oh, that's a slippery slope to socialism, there are plenty of Republicans out there who know. You know, your most dyed-in-the-wool Western, hard-bitten conservative rancher in Wyoming knows he or she did not build that ranch by him or herself, does not maintain that ranch by him or her, by herself, but that is cooperation and team that makes things work. right? Uh, but having this conversation in a way that's about universal values rather than Republicans and Democrats, rather than, hey, your flag pin's bigger than my flag pin, right? um, is a way to open up a conversation that lets people in. Uh, I want to give you another concrete recent example Um, At this conference I've been uh, telling you about that I host, uh, uh, it's called the Guiding Lights Weekend, this conference on citizenship. Uh, This year, one of the other highlights, besides uh, Gerda Weissman Klein, uh, was a keynote conversation that we had uh, between someone from the left and someone from the right. The guy from the left was a fellow named Larry Lessig. Uh, Larry Lessig, as you may know, is a law professor at Harvard um, and a uh, really passionate crusader right now uh, on campaign finance reform and reform of the rules of our democracy, right? Uh, But he comes at this from a very progressive standpoint and during the Occupy uh, movement uh, first wave during uh, last fall, uh, Larry Lessig was out there doing teach-ins and speaking to the occupiers and doing all this work, right? He struck up a friendship during this work with a fellow named Mark Meckler. Mark Meckler, some of you may know, is the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots and uh, the Tea Party Patriots uh, and the guy who spends time in Occupy camps, you usually don't see a lot of intersection uh, between those two domain, domains, right? But one thing that Larry and Mark, as humans, as individuals, began to realize is there is a big, big, big amount of overlap in the Venn diagram between what gets Occupy mad and what gets the Tea Party mad. And where that overlap lives is in the rigging of the game, The corruption by big money of our policy and our politics, the way in which severe inequality has given so much outsized voice to a few people, right? Now, for the left, they hate that that power is concentrated on Wall Street and the banks. And the right, they hate that that power is concentrated on lobbyists who then get elected, re-elected, and perpetuate big government. But But the thing that underlies both of their fears and concerns is this sense that the game has gotten rigged. And so they, Larry and Mark, have started these conversations about, well, how can we find common cause? How can we build coalitions? How can we create a new kind of conversation in this country uh, about what we're supposed to do together to reclaim citizenship and reclaim our democracy, right? And guess what? They get a lot of pushback from their, their confreres on each side, right? Uh, Larry uh, wrote about this and he got flamed on the internet from the left. What are you doing with those racists? What are you doing with those people? How can you be aiding and abetting anything Tea Party related? Mark Meckler, same thing. What are you doing with these guys? We're not occupiers. We're not these dirty da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, right? And one of the things that they came to realize was that they must be on to something. In the same way that I realized I was onto something when I was getting callers calling me either socialist or Nazi uh, uh, you know, uh, on the call in show today, right, for proposing the spirit of citizenship. Uh, and what they're onto is not only that there is common ground, but that there are new ways of talking about it, right? And, and, and that, that new way of talking about it isn't going to be something that arrives kind of air, by airmail from some great leader. It is going to emerge bottom up from lots and lots and lots of courageous little conversations. Right? And so to me, when Larry and Mark sat on a stage uh, and had this conversation at Guiding Lights weekend, um, it wasn't so much even the content of what they were saying that was so powerful, that, though that was powerful, and they were both talking about corruption and all this stuff, but it was just what they were modeling. They were modeling for a room of 500 people from all over the country who were more progressive than not that you could have this discussion without demonizing. And they also disagreed, often fiercely, in the course of their conversation. And they modeled how to do that, too. Right? And I think all of us have to find ways to do that. All of us have to find ways to strike up conversations with people with whom we either know we disagree or don't know whether or not we agree. Right? That's getting harder every day. Technology, isolation, the economy, everything is pushing us towards flocking with birds of a feather. Right? Uh, And so it requires more affirmative effort for us to strike up those conversations, but I think it's possible. And there's a key word that uh, uh, my fellow Yankee fan used there, which I think is so important, and that word is trust, trust. If there's one bit of secret sauce we have in America, even apart from our creed, and even apart from our kind of immigrant heritage and our spirit of innovation, it is that we have amazing, We often take it for granted. We often squander it. But we have amazing stocks of trust in this country. And if you look over the arc of history, or even look in our time right now across nations, high-functioning societies are always high-trust societies. Societies with great, robust economies are always high-trust societies. Societies with great social health, demographic outcomes are always high-trust societies. Trust is the magic Secret sauce, right? And that's true in, you know, Denmark, uh, but Denmark or Finland, they have it easy. They're small, they're ethnically homogenous, they've got a single cultural uh, heritage to draw from. We have none of those advantages. All we have is the disadvantage of our splendid, beautiful, spilling out of control diversity, right? And to me, our job every day is to convert that potential disadvantage into an absolute competitive advantage, right? And we have to find ways to build those stocks of trust. A lot of people talk in America, again, many of my friends on the left like to, to use the phrase, celebrate diversity. It's a bumper sticker, you see it all the time. It's sort of a truism on the left, celebrate diversity. I don't believe in that at all. I don't believe we should celebrate diversity. I believe we should celebrate only what we do with diversity. The mere bird's eye demographic fact that in this room tonight is X percent people of Asian Pacific Islander descent, X percent people of African descent, X percent people uh, of, you know, Hispanic descent, Hispanic can be of any race, asterisk, you know, all all, all this stuff um, (laughs) is of no consequence. That's just a reporting of demographic fact. That's just a a color-coded snapshot of us. The only thing that matters is what are we going to do with it? How are we going to learn to do things together? How are we going to learn to strike up conversations? This is why I'm a huge, huge believer in national service. If I could be king or, you know, I'll settle for senator, you know, one thing I would want to do is to have a national service program in the United States for young people. Where people, we don't have a draft. We don't have any, any experience that pulls people together from different places, different voices, different sectors to find that common spirit. We have occasional moments to come together at Zocalo Public Square. We have wonderful programs like Cal Humanities that do that, right? But the people who show up for those are already self-selected in. They didn't need persuading. I believe we have to have more and more intentional opportunities to convert our diversity into that competitive advantage and to build trust. There's only one way to build trust, which is to build trust, which is to practice doing stuff together with people you didn't think you could do stuff with together. Uh, and to me, that is the essence of, of great citizenship.
1: Thank you all so much for coming.
0: Thank you all so very much for, for your great questions and, and ideas. Thank you.